Well, you might remember, uh, many of you probably were sitting next to your mother as you heard Dorothy exclaim, Toto, I have a feeling we aren't in Kansas anymore. Right? You remember this classic old movie of The Wizard of Oz where, where Dorothy has, has left her, her, her sapia-colored Kansas, right? And in a tornado had been brought and, and had awoken in an entirely new world, a, a world of, of vivid colors, a, a world of strange creatures, a world of, of magic, of witches and, and wizards. The things that used to be impossible in the old world were now suddenly commonplace and ordinary and normal in her new world. She went to sleep in a, a, a drab and, and sapia-colored Kansas, and she awoke in the vivid and multicolored Oz. Of course, in the movie, this is all just a dream, but in the original book, this was real, right? The story is, is that there really was a land Oz, and then it, it changed absolutely everything. So too has Mary, if we're to believe John the evangelist as he writes, Mary has woken up to a whole new world, but she, she hasn't quite figured it out yet. She doesn't come out of her house like Dorothy and, and find these, these vivid colors and this golden path uh, walking away. She hasn't seen the little heads of the munchkins popping up out of the garden. Mary doesn't realize it yet because she went to sleep on a normal day and woke up in her normal place. But nothing is about to be the same. Because you see, the manifold witness of Scripture was is that this was not just the third day after Jesus died, that this was not just the, the, the ordinary first day, but this was the first day of God's new kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus had been proclaiming, the kingdom that the prophets had foretold, the kingdom that the patriarchs had, had longed for long ago, that this was a new world and you cannot bring your old assumptions of the old world into it. Because in this world there is new possibilities and there is transformed realities and it is all because over the night something happened. Jesus had risen from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, the world transformed in ways that Mary cannot imagine. But it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like it to Mary. In fact, as we read through it, we find out how slow she is to figure it out, how slow Peter and John are to, to figure out that this change has happened, and it doesn't probably feel that way for us either. In fact, a lot of times when we talk about the resurrection, it's it's a way just to like tie a pretty bow at the end of the, the Gospels. It's a, it's a, a, a counterpull to the, the, the push of the crucifixion, right? It's the way to, to give the story a, a happy ending, but it's not really a, a world-changing reality. The resurrection for many of us, the story of Christianity that we have, have lived and understood the resurrection doesn't change all that much. But if we're to understand what John has to tell us 
about Jesus, if we're to understand what Jesus himself has been saying to these crowds all this time, then the resurrection is of the most essential thing. It is the resurrection that that transforms and and rebrands. It is the the resurrection that gives power and authority. It is the resurrection that begins the new coming kingdom. In fact, it's the resurrection that shows that the kingdom is already here. And so if we're going to come to grips with God's world, with the, the story of Jesus, then we must come to grips with the world that Jesus says to have brought here. And so we're going to look this morning, we're going to follow Mary along on her path. And we're going to point out just three observations, three things as we see Mary transform from the old world, the way old sapia-colored world that she knew into the multicolored vision of the kingdom that Jesus gives her. The first observation that we're going to look is that that Mary is looking through the world as she gets up that morning, as she travels in the dark, that Mary is looking through the lens, the lenses that were made for the old world. She was looking through lenses that had become accustomed to the, the, the drab browns and reds of sapia and was not yet ready, not yet able to see what was really going on around her. In fact, if you're like me, as you read this story, and Mary keeps, like, she keeps alluding to this, this, this story, right? This uh, conspiracy, this bizarre idea that the, that the tomb had been stolen, right? That, that, that a thief had come and had taken Jesus's body with her, with the, the, the thief had come and taken Jesus's body with them. Right, it's, it's at first a plausible story. It's a normal story in the first century, but as the story goes on, it becomes less and, and less plausible, right? You, as she, every time she repeats this story, it, it makes me cringe, right? Already looking in hindsight, we come to the story, and, and right off the bat, when she sees the empty tomb and she runs and she tells Peter and, and John and, and the rest that, that the tomb is empty and that somebody that they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And already we're going, wait, well, well, Mary, Mary, don't you remember? Don't you remember all the times that Jesus said that, that the Son of Man must uh, go to the earth and return? Don't you remember when Jesus said that the temple would be torn down and that he would raise it again in three days? Surely, Mary, when you see an empty tomb, the, the stone rolled away, it should jog your memory, right? It should make you reflect and think of, well, well, maybe that's what Jesus was talking about. But neither for Mary, for Peter, for John, did that click. John explicitly tells us that we did not yet understand from the scriptures, from the prophets or from the words of Jesus, we didn't understand what had happened. Peter and John come to the, the tomb and they find the, the linens, right? The, the wrappings around Jesus' body and they find them still lying there on the table. And more than that, they find the, the face cloth that had been lied over Jesus' face had been taken and, and folded up neatly and placed on a, on a separate place. Like Jesus made the bed when he woke up from the dead. <laughs> 
But nobody else would do that, right? The, the, the thief, the, the, the story of a thief coming is ludicrous. They wouldn't leave behind the valuable spices and, and linens that were there. They would not take the time, even if they were a, a, a friend, a supporter, another disciple, they wouldn't take the time to ta- peel off his linens there in the grave and fold up his cloth neatly. Right? They would take the body with its wrappings in all. They would not leave the linens. It, it doesn't make any sense of the story. There is no person, friend or foe, who would take Jesus' body and leave the linens. And yet, Mary's not changing her story yet because she can't see. She still is seen through the lens of the, the, the colors of the old world. More than that, here in verse 12, she's standing there weeping and she looks into the tomb and she sees two angels sitting there. And if anything should tip you off that probably, you know, maybe things have changed a little bit, maybe your explanation's a little off, right? You would think two angelic messengers sitting there in the tomb would make her revise her theory or at least think through it again. But no, what does she say? They said, woman, why are you weeping? And she says again, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid them. Jesus himself comes to her and asks her, why are you weeping? And still she responds, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where he is. Mary can't see what is obviously right in front of her because she only has eyes for the old world. She only has eyes that can see what used to be possible in the old world. And she, as a first century Jew, would not ever consider. It was inconceivable to think that one person would rise bodily from the grave. The resurrection was believed by the Jews, but it was a a last day. It was everybody was resurrected at once. It was completely incomprehensible, uh, you know, uh, famous historian and theologian N.T. Wright takes great pains to point this out, that it's incomprehensible in first century Judaism. It's incomprehensible in first century Greek. It's incomprehensible in first century Roman thinking to believe in a bodily resurrection. And so it's not unusual that she is so slow to get it. She's living in the land of Oz as if she was still living in the land of of Kansas, right? Because in in the old world story, in the story that she had in some ways falsely conceived, uh, she was stuck. Jesus, the one that they had hoped was the Messiah, had died. But none of the rest of of the, 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 the expectations of a Messiah had come true. They still lived in occupation. The pagans still ruled their land. Their exile and, and departure from their homeland continued. There was, with Jesus dying, there was no hope of him being the savior of, of the world. The, no hope of him bringing in a new kingdom where Israel was restored and the world flourished. With Jesus dead, the, the story of Jesus ended in a tragedy of co- what-ifs and could-haves or buts. But Jesus' story was not a tragedy. Jesus' story was a victory. 
If only she could stop looking through the lenses of the old world and, and understand that something dramatic has changed. But you know what? As I look at Mary and I think of us, I wonder, I wonder if we would do even any better, even with hindsight. Even having uh, known this story, would we have operated any better? And I don't think we would. And here's why. Because I still think even today we live in a, 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 a sort of Christian religion which doesn't believe in the resurrection. At least not believe it in any active way. At least not believe it in a way where it transforms and remakes the world. Let me prove it to you. Mary in this story comes in the dark, which for John is, is a sure indication that she is, is lacking, right? That she is, is not comprehending what is going on. And yet, if we look at who Mary Magdalene is in this text, any one of your mothers, if you were raised in a Christian home, would be so excited at how good and perfect she is, right? We look at Mary before she gets the resurrection, before she can even have eyes to see the difference that Jesus makes, and we think, that's pretty good, right? And Mary had a dramatic conversion, Luke tells us. She was a, a woman that had been possessed by seven demons that Jesus had, had taken out of her. Mary was a good girl. Look at the way that she comes uh, diligently, proactively here in the morning, coming generously with spices to care for the body of Jesus. She comes with uh, an assertive nature, right, that would make any mother or father proud of their daughter. She's not waiting behind for the men who are hiding in the room. She is going out to weep and to grieve. She is going out to, to pay her respects. She's a good, brave, assertive, generous, diligent girl. She's a girl who loves Jesus. It's obvious, isn't it? She loves Jesus. And her devotion to him does not die when she thought he would, she would never see him again. She loved the things that Jesus taught. She longed for the things that Jesus taught to be true. She was in every way imaginable a believer in Jesus Christ. And yet she didn't understand the resurrection. But when we look at the spirituality of Mary, many of us are prone actually to put her on a pedestal, right? This is what we want for our daughters, right? This is what we would want for our sons, is that they would love Jesus and be diligent and kind, that they would be brave and assertive and generous, right? That they would leave behind the ways of their previous life and enter into a new life with Jesus, but yet... There is something that is dreadfully, terribly lacking in Mary. And while we want to give her applause, while we say that's about as good as a Christian experience as you can get, John says she's still walking in the dark. There's something lacking in Mary's world, and there's something lacking in ours. Mary is still processing and looking out at the world through these sapia colored lenses and so are we but mary doesn't stay that way the second observation we have this morning is is, is that uh we quickly find as as mary interacts with jesus that mary ought not be that way 
that Mary ought to be uh, discontent with her understanding of the world, that she ought to be discontent with the old world. Mary there at the tomb, and she interacts with the angelic beings, and they ask her this probing question, Mary, why are you weeping? She's like, isn't it obvious? Jesus comes to her, and he follows up again with the same question, Mary, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I remember once a, a, a counselor, as I was recounting some story, he, he, he asked me that same question, where do those tears come from? Where, what, what is bringing on the tears? You see, it's a question that actually is a pretty good diagnostic tool. The tears come from somewhere. The tears come from some expectation or some hope, some expectation or hope that has gone unfulfilled. Or maybe the tears come from from joyness or, or happiness. Perhaps the tears come from bitterness or fear. The tears can come from any number of places, but why are you weeping? Ask the question of which world are you living in? Are you living in a world where, are you weeping because you are trapped in an old world where, where your desires are frustrated because you think that there is nothing but waiting longer that is in store for you? Are you weeping because you think that the kingdom of God has not come? Or are you weeping because there is tension? Weeping because you know that the kingdom has come, but it has not come to its fullest. You see, Jesus, as he comes to Mary, while she does not recognize him, he asks her this probing question, woman, why are you weeping? Because he knows that she ought to expect so much more of him. The rest of the the John, the last chapter and a half that we'll spend the next few weeks looking at, probes into to, to these ideas of how do we conceive of our, of our purpose and our calling into the world. When Jesus comes to Peter, we will probe and we will ask, do we know, do we believe in our forgiveness? Do we believe what the resurrection, the new world has to say about who we are being made to be? Do we believe in the Holy Spirit? You see, the resurrection of Jesus sets apart the world into a new way. But many of us are living a Christianity that could easily cut off the resurrection and it would change nothing. Let me give you one particular way that I noticed this in my own heart. As I prayed earlier this week, I was, uh, just came across the story of Ahmad Arbery. Right, This week was the first time that it popped up into, into my news feed as I scrolled through the headlines. This week was the first time that it, it came into my social media uh, friends and contacts as articles were written and, and posted, thoughts and mornings. And I noticed uh, the, first, the first time I saw the picture, and, and at this stage, right, you see the the picture of this of this uh, African American gentleman standing there with uh, a, a good natured smirk on his face, right? And and you know, unfortunately, what the headline is going to be at the bottom. And so I groaned. But why did I groan? Why did uh, I weep, as it were? 
And I have to confess to you guys this morning that I did not groan that first groan because there was an overwhelming sense of grief for the tragic loss of life. The groan that I had when I first saw the news was not a groan of empathy or sympathy for his mother and his family, his community that would be taken, he was taken from. I must confess that my groans were not because of, of the, the, re, uh, the, the, the renewed sense of fear that it strikes into the hearts of, of the entire black community of, for their sons and daughters. No, I wasn't groaning over a livid uh, discontent and a, a livid frustration with uh, the police officers and the, the justice systems that had delayed in processing uh, the claims against this man, who had delayed even though they had video evidence in arresting the people who took his life. I did not groan for any of those reasons. I groaned because I knew I was going to feel guilty when I opened that article. I've groaned because I didn't want to be inconvenienced by the news. Because you see, I knew that I would open this article and it would hit me with this flood of, of the things that I ought to have done. The things that uh, I told myself last time I saw a hashtag that I would change in my life or my behavior. The things that I would change in, in how I read and how I learned of the world. It would change the way I did relationships, but none of those things have changed, and so his post made me groan for myself rather than groan for him. But if I could, I think the reason for my groaning, the groaning for myself, the groaning because I was going to feel guilt and grief is because I fundamentally was not experientially believing in the resurrection. Because you see, in the old story, grief and guilt go hand in hand. Because guilt is the pattern of the old world that says, you dummy, you are supposed to change. You dummy, you're supposed to be made new. But the resurrection opens a new paradigm, a new set of colors, a set of colors that looks at my life and says, you can be changed too. See, the resurrection opens a new way of looking at the world. A world where Jesus in his life lays a, a, a foundation for justice for the oppressed. Right? Remember when they asked Jesus, he says, I have come, right? Why? So that the poor could receive the good news. So that the sick could be healed. So that the oppressed would have justice. And you see, if, it, if I'm not stuck in an old world where I'm just waiting for some day when, when, when everything is fixed all of a sudden and magically, if instead I believe in a resurrection where Jesus says, I laid this foundation and I rose to new life so that I might ascend to the Father and give you the Holy Spirit, right? So that you can build upon the foundation that I started. Because you see, without the resurrection, then the kingdom is not here in the time and space that we live. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, as it becomes painfully obvious as we go through the rest of the Gospel of John, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then the kingdom is here and now, and it changes the way I see, the way I experience the world. 
And so if Jesus has laid the foundations, then it, it calls on me to see the world in a different way, a, a world in which I can participate in building walls around on top of his foundation, walls around those who are oppressed. You see, in, in the old world, Mary waited as a Jew waited for, for God to come back and to, to exalt the Jews over and above the pagan nations. But Jesus comes as the true Israelite. And he is lifted up onto a cross. Why? Because he says that in his new kingdom there is neither Jew nor Greek. That there is neither, uh, there's not a division between different kinds of people that we all share in one family. So even in Jesus, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, has planted seeds that would uproot and, and dismember the old divisions. And so if I believe in the resurrection, if I believe that Jesus has really actually started a new kingdom, right, then there would flourish and grow in me, in the garden of my life, a, 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 a sorrow a weeping, a tear that mourns with those who are hurting rather than mourns over my waiting. See, if the resurrection is real, if the new world has actually come, then the song that Jesus wrote, the score that he produced and, and recorded, right, of of a life that flourishes apart from sin. If Jesus wrote that song in his life and he distributes it in his crucifixion and he makes it available to us in his resurrection, then we can sing the song again because the kingdom that Jesus came to bring is true. And we can sing it to ourselves. We can be free to acknowledge the, the, the temptations to be uh, comfortable, the temptations to be afraid of the people we don't know, the temptations to, to hide from our neighbors such that we don't recognize the black man jogging down our street. We can be free to confess those things because the resurrection is true. You see, I groaned because I was content to live in a form of, of life where the resurrection wasn't real. But Jesus comes to Mary, and Jesus comes to Mary, and he says, Why are you weeping? Why are you groaning? And what he's about to show her is that what she's been weeping over is a false story. It's a story that belonged to the old world but did not belong to the new. Jesus wants her to become discontent with the way that things are. And that leads us to our third observation, and it's this. How that Mary is turned by the gracious voice of God. Because if you're like me and, and you are sitting there looking perhaps at the, the situation that I just explained, right? And, and it's saying that we're going to see the world, if we believe in the resurrection, we'll see the world in, in these new colors, and, and we'll see the world as it really is, and we'll see the world with new hope, and we go, but... But I don't. I can't. 
No matter all the things that I said I was going to do, I haven't done. I can't turn myself. But you notice here that Mary is turned around in her story. Mary realizes the new colors of the new kingdom, the new world that God had made, but she does not get there by herself. Mary turns when she hears her name spoken by Jesus. John tells us in this resurrection stories, he tells us not just of Mary, but he points out three individual, deeply intimate, personal conversations he has with his disciples, with those followers who, who came to him. And each one with Mary, with Thomas, with Peter, it's like he's, he's coming and, and waking, stirring them awake. Right, It's when he says her name that Mary realizes who Jesus is. It's when Jesus says her name that Mary understands the story that has just transpired. It's when he says her name, right, as Jesus told them that the sheep would hear his voice, that he would know his sheep by name and they would hear his voice and that they would follow. Because you see, if you go out trying to change the way you act, to make, if you go out there trying to, to fix and to solve the complex systems of racism in our world, the complex systems of racism that exist in you, right? Forget the world, just inside of you. But you go to do it on your own. You go to do it without being changed by uh, being turned around by the voice of God, without believing in the resurrection. Then you will go out there and you will end up, I promise, in fatalistic despair, over the, the unchanging brokenness of the situation. You will go out there and, and, or, or, or you will come with a, a hateful sort of finger pointing. If, if those people would just fix their behavior, if those people would stop doing that, whoever those people are, but you won't actually change. The problems will remain. It is only, it is only by those people who... Jesus comes and he changes us. Jesus is calling our names. He's inviting us to see and to experience a world that is, is rich in color, not, uh, not to live in this sapia-colored, dreary Kansas land. Jesus is saying, I have risen from the dead and there is new life. So tell me again, why do you weep? Why do you groan? Do you not understand what I am doing in the world? So the world is changed here in John chapter 20. The world will never be the same, and it is the resurrection of Jesus that, that is the watershed moment. It is the moment that, that changes everything. I remember uh, when <clears throat> Whitney and I were expecting Ellie, and we were living in Kentucky, but we went home uh, one Sunday, and we were at our, our home church. And I remember the, the senior pastor who was there at the time, Pastor Ben, and he was, he were, we were catching up a little bit after church, and uh, we were talking about this forthcoming uh, baby that was about to arrive. And I remember him looking at me, and, and, and he said, you know, nothing will ever be the same again. He said, you know, marriage was a big shift for you, I'm sure. It was a big change. There's a lot of things that had to go different. He said, but when you have a baby, when you have a baby, like, you can't go get the mail 
without thinking about the baby. You can't go to the bathroom without making sure the baby is in a safe position. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You can't do any aspect of your life the same because that baby has come into the world. And he was right. For the last nine years, I have not gone to the bathroom the same way. I have not eaten food the same way. I have not uh, gone to bed when I wanted or woke up when I wanted, right? Because that life changed the story. It changed the world that I lived in. It utterly transformed how I see and how I experience the world. And it's that level of change that Jesus' resurrection ought to work in us. It's a world that is full of, of new dangers and fears, but it's also a world that's full of opportunities and blessing. It's a world that's full of more color and excitement than we could ever imagine on the other side. So Jesus invites us to reconsider our world, to take off these sapia-colored glasses which we think nothing can be fixed, that nothing can be grown, that no change can be had and to be reminded that he is king and he has already started a new, beautiful, multicolored world and he's invited us to be a part. Pray with me. Father, we come this morning, Lord, and we pray that you would, God, that you would remake this story in our hearts. God, that you would remake the way that we think, the way that we see the way that we comprehend and, and process the world. Lord, that you would not leave us in despair over our, our ineptitude, that you would not leave us in despair over the, the severity of brokenness that we experience, but Lord, that you would fill us with a confident hope, a, a, a full and, and pure hope, a hope that is driven by your spirit as you lead us into your new world and your new kingdom. For, Lord, we will one day see what our faith proclaims, that you will make this world new. Make us new, we pray. Amen.